Break Fix Podcast is all about capturing the living history of people from all over the autosphere, from wrench turners and racers to artists, authors, designers, and everything in between. Our goal is to inspire a new generation of petrol heads that wonder, how did they get that job or become that person? The road to success is paved by all of us because everyone has a story. If you're a fan of the Mazda Miata's amazing balance and handling characteristics, then tonight's Brake Fix guest is 100% to blame. He is best known as the concept engineer for the original Miata, and he developed the original suspension as well as the packaging layout, achieving the group's goal of the ultimate lightweight sports car. Norman H. Garrick III is an accomplished automotive engineer, having worked for major companies such as Mazda, Subaru, and Volvo. His corporate experiences span the global automotive development arena with notable success in specific markets related to energy, emissions, and materials. He has supported Georgia Tech as well as Oak Ridge National Lab. And if that wasn't enough, you might recognize him from some of his most recent articles on Haggerty, like A Few Things You Should Know Before You Steal My 914 and Right Seat Confessions of an On-Track Driving Instructor. And with that, we'd like to welcome Norman to Break Fix to share some of his stories. So welcome. Good evening, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Your petrol headness, if that's a word, it goes way, way back. So why don't we rewind the clock and talk about your origin story, the who, the what, the where, and the when that got you into cars. Was this a childhood passion? Did you come from a racing family? What led you to become an automotive engineer? Uh, I have to say the good Lord just kind of put the gene in me, motor oil in the blood and all that. My father was a physician. My grandfather, who lived near us, was a businessman from New York, but I got the bug early. was taking everything apart in the house at the age of four. It would be decades before I could put it all back together again, but it was uh, one of those hellion kids that read every label in the cabinet when I was three years, four years old, just started reading every jar in the grocery store and thirsty for anything I could get my hands on, and then found the public library had books on cars. And from second grade, third grade on, was bicycling to all the libraries in Guilford County and getting rides with my parents to check out every book I could, check out 12 books at a time and memorize them. If it had cars on the cover, I got the book. Back then, what was the car that got your attention the most? Boy, you know, you get imprinted as a kid and as a gosling, I guess I got imprinted on big American cars and then very cool European sports cars. In the hometown I was in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, it was a pretty good center for sports cars. A lot of Aussie Hilly 3000s, Jaguar XKEs, but at the same time, 66 Tornados, spaceship cars, just things that the executives would drive that would just knock your stocks off. I mean, it was an amazing time to be a kid growing up in the 60s. The arrogance of Detroit as they moved away from the gaudy chrome age to the space age, it was fascinating to me. It really didn't matter. If it had gasoline in the tank from a lawnmower to a jet engine airplane, and it was fascinating to me. Anything that was motive, I loved. Coming up through the 60s, I mean, what an amazing time for bespoke cars too, where automotive design was all over the place compared to now where things are extremely cookie cutter. To your point, to use the phrase, the arrogance of Detroit, they went from that to the muscle car era, thanks to Pontiac and John DeLorean and others. Right, right. But 
then we headed into the malaise era and it all seemed to go downhill very quickly from there. It got pretty sad. Yeah, when I graduated engineering school in the early 80s, it was like not the best time to be. Slowly recovering from the mugging that the 70s had done to the automotive industry. It was a pretty sad time. But the 60s were just amazing. We call them designers now, but I call them stylists, where the stylists were just ruling the day and the engineers took a back seat. Cars were made to look a certain way in the the U.S., made to look like an object of desire whether they drove that way or not would be another issue. Whereas the European cars were, you know, more sporty and more set up for racing or you know, at least spirited driving. So early on, you, you could choose a path in the North Carolina South, it being stock car country, even in the 60s, you would choose your path. Either you were going to be a Detroit musclehead or you were going to be one of those tweed cap wearing guys that like the European cars. So I fell into that cap pretty early. I had my Hot Rod Magazine subscription at age seven, but I had my road and track and car and driver and motor train at age seven as well. Love them all, but aggregated toward spirited driving. Drag racing and all that was fun. Turning left around an oval for 100 laps just didn't interest me. We needed left and right turns. You're talking about European sports cars. It's predominantly, during that time, British roadsters. Right, right. Because Porsche hadn't quite established itself yet as a juggernaut in the United States. The Italians right. have been floundering forever stateside. So it was really the Brits that were leading that charge. It was. And, and there was dirt cheap. I mean, I was mowing grass, you know, $3 a yard in my early teens. My first car we can talk about, but my first sports car was a Spitfire that I got for 150 bucks in today's dollars, you know, $800. It was something you could buy by mowing yards. So I got it when I was 14 years old and fixed it up to drive when I got my license, but they were cheap. They were everywhere and they were all broken. And so they were all cheap. So you mentioned your first car. So that Spitfire, that Triumph was not your first. So what was your first car? Well, it becomes a long legacy. Before I was born, my grandfather retired from his company in New York, sold the company and came down about 150 acres of raw land and started playing basically Sim City with 150 acres, but a pond in a barns and all that. Of course, he bought what everybody did in the early 60s, an old World War II Jeep, a leftover Jeep, first year after the war, CJ2A. At the age of six, I was driving it, sitting on a phone book and driving that around the farm, learning how to double clutch and drift in two-wheel drive and, and had a lot of fun. And we still have that in the family. So that was my very first car, even though it was not titled per se in my name. My first car car was when I was 12, my dad had a patient that owned the Chrysler dealership and someone had traded in Ford Galaxy with a thrown rod, which was worth nothing at this point. A 1962 Galaxy in 1969 would have been through four owners already and fully depreciated, such for the 60s. If you didn't change a car every year, you looked like you were poor. It'd be like having a flip phone today or whatever is the, the faux pas you have for carrying something in public that you shouldn't be having. And this car, even though it was only six or seven years old, had been fully depreciated through all its owners and had thrown a rod. So we got it for free. He towed it into the backyard, much to my mother's chagrin, and I started playing with it. So that was my first official car. It traveled all of 100 feet or 50 feet to the end of the driveway one day, and then uh, we blew it up just for fun. But not a functional car. But I learned a lot. Changed the rod bearings in it, painted the valve covers, aluminum silver, because that's what you do. Had a lot of fun, I think, when I was 13. We got rid of it and I got into motorcycles and started racing motocross and that consumed my interest until a great turning event came when my father, through some great wisdom and sheer luck, I had another patient who owned the Datsun dealership and lo and behold, he bought a Datsun 510, 1970 Datsun 510. And that became my autocross car when I was 15. I was autocrossing 
lying about having a license and would go to SSEA events and autocross that car and modified it with a Peter Brock's a BRE suspension and got into suspension design and theory curiosity with that car. That kind of lined me up. Along the way, it had a lot of TR3s after the Spitfire, TR4s, Europas, Jag XKEs. Got into 914s. I've had like a dozen 914s. Got into 911s. I've tried to have more cars in my age. I've had 73 cars and I'm probably, I don't know what, 40 motorcycles. So I could be on uh, Lifetime as a hoarder. I do flush them out. Right now, I only have a few in the driveway. So, <laughs> And not all of them run. My excuse is they don't all run. So it's okay. You know, sometimes we ask this question of our guests. What's the most gorgeous car of all time? The sexiest car of all time? Prettiest car? Things like that. I want to ask you this question because it goes so far back into your history. The cars you thought were awesome when you were a kid, are they still the most awesome cars now that you're an adult looking back? Is it still that prettiest car? Is that that one that imprinted on you? Or is it something different when you kind of compare A to B? 66 Tornado still knocks my socks off. And I actually had a weird experience uh, three years ago. I was at a shop in Concord, North Carolina. And a guy had a 64 Imperial, which is not a car you see often. It's the Green Hornet car. Yep. And you see Cadillacs in that era and you see Lincolns all the time. And you never see Imperials because most of them were ruined in demolition derbies because they were impossible to Actually, they got outlawed for demolition derbies because they didn't break. I ended up buying the darn thing. It was a 60,000 mile car out of Oklahoma. I named it Edna and fell in love. And that era, again, just that audacity of this thing was huge. It was like having a porch you know, attached to your house that you could drive around the block. It was an amazing vehicle. So I'd have to say the imprinting lasts still with me. As an engineer, I'm still a very visual person. So the sleek things that were happening in the 70s. If you're going to lead to the question of what is the most beautiful car ever, I'd have to say the very few ugly cars in the sports car world. The Daimler may be the worst looking one. The Jag E-Type Coupe, that and the, and the Ferrari 275 GTB. And the Miura. You can't say anyone. It's like asking which one of my children was best looking. I mean, the Commendatore always said, you know, Enzo. Right. Yes, that the E-Type was the most beautiful car that he had ever seen. And look at all the cars that he had penned over the years. Right, exactly. So we can jump ahead. When I was working in the design studio at Mazda, I was a studio engineer and I was able to work in the studio and watch the process of someone building a car from scratch out of thin air, literally out of clay and trying to make it beautiful. And it's very difficult to do. I'm not a sketch artist, barely make something that looks like what it should look like. I have a daughter who's a Rembrandt level artist and she can do amazing things with pen and ink. And the clay modelers who interpreted what the stylist designers were saying at Mazda, to watch that process was remarkable. And I really came out of that saying, it's really hard to make a pretty car. It is very hard to make a three-dimensional object gorgeous. God does it very well with people and horses and giraffes, but for us to make something. And then with the Miata, the RX-7, third gen RX-7 was a great exercise in that how beautiful can a shape be and i think that was a penultimate exercise by um chinson when he did that work watching that come together i'd walk up to them at night and i'd say guys you know it won't cost me any more money to tool up a very beautiful fender so why don't you stay late tonight and make this fender beautiful because you're not there yet and we all would be critical of the shapes and that's also very difficult for a stylist slash designer to do the work because everyone's a critic they come in and say that's just not right but they may think it's beautiful and the person may have bad taste the executives may not get where they're going etc etc i really came to appreciate how difficult it is to make a shape beautiful and that that makes me appreciate all the more an E-type. The covered headlight E-types don't have a bad angle. But on the same effect, we're all used to seeing C4 Corvettes and we're tired of seeing C4 Corvettes maybe. 
But that shows the skill level of GM's design studio, that there is really not a bad angle on a C4 Corvette. You're so used to it that you may not appreciate it. But if you were to drop that car in the 1940 into a car show, people would go crazy. It takes a lot of skill to have a car that looks beautiful from all angles. I was working at Subaru prior to Mazda when the first Subaru XT came out. I remember this is like it was yesterday. We walked into the warehouse and the XT was facing a sideways. We saw the profile view of the XT and we went crazy because a Subaru XT 1985 model, 1986 model in side view, profile view is not ugly. It's actually pretty interesting looking car for 1985. The minute you walk to the front three quarter, the whole thing drops like a house of cards. It, again, it's very difficult to make a three-dimensional object gorgeous. And you have to appreciate the skill level it takes. And there's very few people in the world that can do this. There's, not a, there's probably not a hundred guys in the world and women that can do three-dimensional shapes that are gorgeous. That has nothing to do with engineering or how cars drive, but just on their sheer look. In some ways, the automotive industry is like the women's shoe business. It has to look great to sell. And cars don't look great, don't sell. I haven't thought about the XT in a long time. And it reminds me that visually it's a precursor to the SVX. It's similar right. sort of design. It might not have been thought of that way, but I kind of put those links in the chain together sometimes when I see right. a car and go, it, it has heritage right there. Right. So it's right. kind of funny. And, and you don't see XTs ever on the road. I mean, if they no. even exist anymore no. for that matter. You said you started at Subaru and then went to Mazda. How did you go from growing up in the Carolinas to suddenly finding yourself in design studios in California and things like that? What was that transition like? How did you get your way in? I'll leave with the statement. It's very difficult to get into the automotive industry, or at least it was in the 80s, and it still kind of is. But once you're in, it's pretty easy to move around. I went to Georgia Tech to learn how to design race cars or to continue my education and chassis and suspension and race car designing to punctuate that statement. Now the Miata is the most race car in the world because there's a great satisfaction to that circle of life. Not just due to my credit, but what Mazda did with that design. When I graduated in early 81, I had offers. It was a great time to be an engineer. had a lot of job offers. I did not really want to go to Detroit. And no offense to Detroit, I did not want to be the right rear door Cadillac ashtray engineer. And there is one. And I didn't want to be that guy. Due to my father's, not influence, he never asked me to be a doctor or do anything else, but I wanted to use my skills to help humanity in a moment of a 22-year-old empathy for the world. So I went to the West Coast to do cardiovascular implant research, and I was hired by heart valve company in Southern California and Irvine and designed artificial heart valves and annual plastic rings, other cardiovascular implants for uh, about a year and a half. And ironically, my window in my office in that building looked out across to the Mazda design studio. But I realized my heart wouldn't, that's a bad pun, my heart was not in that job, so to speak. And so left and went to Subaru when they were looking for a design engineer and did that job for a couple of years. And then Mazda had an opening just as they were getting the studio going for a studio engineer. Jumped at that chance. And it was amazing because the first day on the job, they said, we're thinking about doing a lightweight sports car. What do you know about race cars? And I said, well, I have, that's you know my number one fan. Uh, that's what I've been my whole life is trying to do race cars or sports cars. So at that point, I'd had probably 30 European sports cars. So it was a perfect melding of opportunity and preparation for me. So did you also come up through an SAE type of program? I was, I joined SAE as a student. I've actually a 40 year, 42 years now I've been an SAE. Joined as a student. We didn't have formula SAE then. We had mini Baja and we had student competition on relevant engineering at Georgia Tech, which was well, all the schools did this. Georgia Tech, we built a hydrogen car, hydrogen powered vehicle based on a Fiat 128, which is 
that's a whole other story. Sort um, of like your dots in 510, but I wasn't going to go there. Whoa, that's a, that's damning by harsh praise to say that they're the same. They both have uh, a boxy shape, and there's no more similarity than that. <laughs> it was very heavily involved in SAE, and it was a pretty strong program at Tech, although Michigan would have been better, or, you know, where there was an automotive engineering, you know, master's and PhD programs. But it was a very interesting time. We were reeling off the 70s, where EPA and crash protection and the insurance lobby had just crushed the industry. All the research dollars had gone into emissions certification. We had 455 cubic inch Oldsmobiles making 160 horsepower. Just a horrible time. Horrible time. We had a 55 mile an hour speed limit that was clamped on the year I got my driver's license. It was not a great time. But at the same time, we had all these great British first cars that dentists and doctors had bought and then couldn't keep running so we could buy them for nothing. For a few hundred dollars, you could buy a TR6. My Jag, I bought for 600 bucks and I got it because it was just sitting at a repair shop and a guy couldn't afford to fix it. But it was a different world and a, a sidebar. So if you knew how to do your own work, restoring a car in the 70s, there was no internet, there were no manuals, there were no parts. It was a lot of blacksmithing. Luckily, English cars are largely blacksmithed together, so you could blacksmith one back together. The MGTD that's behind me is largely built with a hammer and some pig iron. So you can fix it pretty readily with a crescent wrench and a hammer. But you get into more sophisticated things. There wasn't a microchip or a computer and anything except my early 914s, and we immediately put carburetors on them. But the 70s was a very difficult time. Now you can be very bold and buy a complicated, the car next to me here, the 964, a car with 30-year-old German processors that are dying as we speak. You can listen carefully and hear them crinkling themselves to death. Yet on the internet, there's not a problem yet I've had with it that you don't find 20 guys that have already fixed it. And they're telling you how to fix it, where to get the part or where to get the will fit part from Advanced Auto instead of the one that Porsche wants you to buy. So it's a great time now to restore these old cars. You decided that there wasn't anything exciting as Subaru anymore and you get this opportunity at Mazda. How did that play out? Well, it was funny. I wasn't really looking for a job. Someone just told me, hey, Mazda's looking for an engineer just for yucks. I sent the resume over, but I was very happy at Subaru. It's a phenomenal company, four-day work week, company car. Everything was perfect about Subaru of America at Subaru Technical Center. But just sent the resume out. At Georgia Tech, they had told us that you should change jobs every two years for your first 10 years so that you experience different companies and grow. A lot of people have 20 years experience in a job. It's really one year, 19 times. They really said, be aggressive until you're 30 or you know, 32 and try to get as much experience as you can in any engineering. And they'll make you a better engineer. And so I'd been at Subaru, not quite two years, but the Mazda thing, they built the RX-7 and I loved the rotary engine. I was very fascinated by it and people were racing them and all that. So it just seemed to be like, well, let's go see what they had to say. And I'd kind of learned the Subaru world, had kind of caught up to what they were doing. And we had just done the design work for cars that were coming out in a couple of years and it wasn't going to be, it'd be five more years before we did any more new cars. So it was just kind of a perfect storm. But once I got there, it was a perfect opportunity. It was kind of a perfect match for the Miata to the RX-7 programs. It fit with my interest. I worked, you know, 60, 70 hours a week for free, basically. Um, after the 40 hours a week, I worked because I just loved it. I had a great appetite for the work they were asking me to do. Um, all of us felt that way. Everybody was just working their tail off because it was a dream job to be able to design, whether it was a Miata or the third gen RX-7 or the second gen RX-7, to be able to work on these cars and get paid for it was kind of a dream for all of us gearheads. So if we align 
the stories of some previous guests, also from the world of SRO, you were rubbing elbows with folks like Dean Case and Jim Jordan and others who have been on right. Break Fix as well. So, right. I mean, talk about a long history there too. All roads lead to Mazda, it seems like, in some ways. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think it was an attractive company from an employee standpoint, engineer anyway. You'd be like, I'd like to work for this company. And it'd be like, well, I applied to Porsche when I was a junior at Georgia Tech and I got I had this flush letter from them saying, no, thank you. But it's, it's very... Yeah, there's certain companies you'd like to work for. I was the first engineer hired by Mazda. And uh, a couple of years in, they said, okay, we need to expand. And so we, we posted the job in Detroit and in Southern California. We got like 200 resumes. All, a, a lot of guys from Ford and GM and Chrysler wanted to move to you know, Newport Beach, Irvine in Southern California. And I had this stack of hundreds and hundreds of resumes. And I'm going through them. And there's this one from this guy from Cal Poly San Obispo. And he had an SAE paper that he had written stapled to his resume. And I'm going, this guy's got enough moxie to write an SAE paper on his own. He's 21, 22 years old, and he drives a Mini Cooper, like the original Mini Cooper. And I'm like, okay, we got to interview this guy. And Dean walked in the door and I said, okay, you're, that's it. You're done. You're, you're, you're hired. There's no question we need you. If you have a Mini Cooper and can keep it running and have an engineering degree, we're set. So did he have long hair then like he does now? No, if you Google Jack Nicholson, 1960, so that's what he looked like. He looked like an, a young Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Dean told us the story of the Miata from his perspective, but I want to get it from your perspective when I ask you some pointed questions as well. So how early or late in the Miata's birth process did you get engaged? I came in just as the first clay model was finished. And so the first clay model was just a flyer. Let's just do a two-seater. The package development underneath it was a Mazda GLC. Front engine, rear-wheel drive car, live axle, very tall engine, very tall package. When you look at the image of the first clay model and the first running prototype, very, very tall. So they needed a packaging engineer to bring that down to sports car world. But that was just more, and Mazda was really good at making a clay model and or making a running prototype of a concept. To their credit, they really were brilliant in many ways about design. They would build, in many cases, a running clay model, fiberglass version, and put it out in traffic. And I remember many times we would take the cars down to Laguna Beach and drive these rickety prototypes, almost a kit car, but with a shell on it, up and down Laguna Beach while our executives would sit at a cafe at a sidewalk and watch it in traffic. And it was really excellent because you can look at a car in a, a curtained viewing yard and you get a real world view of what it looks like. Seeing it in traffic, you really get to see what a beautiful car looks like. So I came in just as we started building a running prototype of that first clay model. And it was commissioned by IID, International Automotive Design, owned and run by the late John Schutz in out of England. And they built the running prototype and shipped it over, right-hand drive. And I remember the night we unpacked it, and I haven't told the story before, I actually snuck it out and drove it around Newport Beach for about a half an hour at night, knowing no one could get a picture of it. Realizing it had British electronics and had never been driven before was a great risk. I didn't have a wreck or break the car, brought it back. And, and then later we took it to Santa Barbara. And there's a trip that's been talked about a lot where we showed that car up in Santa Barbara. So from there, the program got, go ahead to go to the next phase, which would be to do a serious package of a sports car. And that's where my work began of put the engineering under the shape. And that's where the push and pull, the tug of war began of Hayashi-san and Yagi-san, Mark Jordan, Tomatano, and Shinzon all wanted a very low cowl point, the windshield wiper area, wanted a very low hood line. I wanted a low belt line because the Spitfire that I had, you could put your arm out the window and it would just fit your armpit. And, if, and that's really important. 
so that you don't look like you stole your dad's car. I think it's the Lexus SC300 that even a six foot tall guy looks like he's a 12 year old kid. Not flattering, nor is it fun. Low belt lines, things like that. We all talked about how to get this package correct from the first clay to the second clay. And if you look at pictures of the second clay model, it's actually really tight. It's not that glamorous of a shape that's a tremendous accomplishment, if I may say so, for the engineering team in Japan and the work I was doing to get that tight and get it small. Along the way of getting it small, I was working on making it raceable. And that is double wishbone suspension, weight distribution inside the wheel center lines, weight distribution left to right correct, all of the things that make a car tunable for racing. If you have the weight distribution and the suspension geometries wrong in the layout stage and you get locked into that, you can never tune that out. You can't take a live axle Camaro and make it, you can't make it a fantastic race car. You can make it competent with great tires and sway bars and lock down the rings and dampers so the thing doesn't move, make it into a go-kart and then it handles. But it's not what we were shooting for with the Miata. We were really looking for a car that communicated lightness and nimbleness to the owner. And that starts not the design stage of the initial layout. Where do the components go? And what kind of space do you leave for the suspension that you need to give you the camber patterns that you want so that you can let the body roll? So you touch on something really important, the lightness and the speed, and that's the mantra of Lotus. And it's right. been often said, you know, when you ask people, the answer is always Miata. And then the joke is the original answer was always Lotus. And when you look at the NA Miata, you see a lot of inspiration from the Elan. There's always been rumors and things like that, that Mazda bought cars and took them apart or this and that, or they were copying this and the other thing. But it sounds like you guys were starting from scratch, but did you take inspiration from Lotus? No, not. I mean, you can say that from a styling standpoint only because it's a long hood, short deck car, as is a C4 Corvette, as is a lot of cars. So proportions are there. And a lot is actually about 70% or 75% the size of a Miata. It's actually a very small, fragile car. I don't know how many thousands they sold, but it was not that greatly accepted of a car, as good a design as it was. And I'm not dissing the design at all. Being a former Europa owner, I loved everything Colin Chapman did with Lotus cars. From an engineering standpoint, there's not one iota from it. So it's kind of a, a naive ninth grader kind of a mentality to say that it's designed after the Elan. Because you look under the skin immediately. The Lotus Elan had a backbone chassis. Uh, actually has Colin Chapman's version of McPherson struts. He had, had Chapman struts in the rear and just not, a, not anywhere near the same car. We actually, IED, after they did the first model, we commissioned them because Mazda had no manpower to do this work. We we're all working, living hand to mouth, so to speak, with time. They asked IED to do a chassis proposal and they proposed a backbone chassis. It looked just like a Lotus Elan and it was heavy and wrong and wouldn't have passed side impact crash testing. It didn't have the torsional rigidity that we needed for the convertible. And Elan worked because it didn't have very much of a heavy chassis. Uh, the chassis was fine because the body didn't weigh anything. The whole car is 15, 1600 pounds. And it's hard for people to understand this, but the real feat of the NA Miata is a thousand kilogram car that can take a 30 mile an hour crash in the front. There's not an MGB or a Spitfire that could come close to that, particularly when they were frame on body cars. A unibody car like the 240Z, all of those had to change as they got into the 80s and, and the insurance companies required that crash test. We were locked into that from day one. We had to have 30 mile an hour crash protection. An interesting side story, we were worried about rollover protection because in 76, Cadillac said the last convertible that'll ever be made is the Cadillac El Dorado, you better buy this. There never will be another convertible, period. And so the Japanese had taken that to heart 
And I remember they came to me and they said, can you look this up? Because I don't think we can build a convertible anymore. Literally had to read the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard, which is the reams and reams of boring, boring regulations. And I got to the section on rollover protection and I fell in love with the GM lawyers for this one moment because they had petitioned subparagraph 5996B that said all the things that had to happen. And then there's one little clause that said convertibles colon exempt. I copied that and faxed it to Japan and everybody said, oh, we can make it convertible. Funny you bring that up because I remember reading in Lee Iacocca's first autobiography where he mentions that when he gets to Chrysler and he said there hasn't been a convertible for sale for so long in the United States. And the story goes, as he writes it, that he waltzes down to the production area where they're building the LeBarons and right. he goes, cut the roof off. And they're like, excuse me, what? He goes, just saws all the roof off. <laughs> I want to see it as a convertible. I love it. And they're like, you're crazy. And then <laughs> next year, there's a LeBaron convertible. Right. It's the first right. reintroduced convertible convertible in the United States since yeah. that Eldorado. And that right. was in the early, early eighties. Right. Uh, there was right. a 20 year blackout period. Yeah. There, not so great convertibles. Yeah. Although, you know, the LeBaron was in, the K car was improved by having his top taken off. No, 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 it was not. <laughs> to go back to what we were talking about before, the Miata, if it isn't a copy of the Elan, which we know it isn't, it does derive its inspiration from classic British roadsters. When you sure. look at it, you sure. think Lotus Elan or MGB or right. Spitfire or whatever. It just has that appeal to it. It's, I'd hate to say, one of the last true roadsters. If right. you look at it, especially when it came out, right? And we joke about this all the time. In some cases, certain cars, they're designed early and come out in the next decade. So the Miata is like the best 90s car designed in the 80s, if you think about it, because right. how long it takes these vehicles to come to market. But if you look at everything that came before, even the Italian roadsters, like the Fiat 124 Spider and the Alfa Duetto right. and things like that, they were all gone by that point, right. Right, where they had been sunsetted. It's the last hope for anybody that wanted a true roadster until obviously the Boxster came along many, many years right. later and things like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that being said, why flip up headlights? You're building this <laughs> revolutionary car and you hang on to something that is so 80s. Well, you have to go back to the FMVSS. The headlamp height requirement, 19 inches to the center or whatever it is, I can't remember the exact number. You would have to have a bug eye Sprite or a 240Z or you had to put the headlights up where a 911 has them. And we wanted a low hood. And the RX-7 first gen had already done it. So it was just a, it was really a part spin kind of a decision. The mechanism was off the shelf, so to speak. It made the front end look great. So back to your point about making it look old when it was new, we wanted it to look five years old when it came out, that it looked classic and that it would look the same 20 years from now, that it would still would be a proper looking car. It'd be in its own right, an attractive feature. And then the same thing happened for the FD RX-7, the last generation RX-7 was let's make a gorgeous car just as gorgeous as it can be because Ferrari never worried about what era they were making these great cars in this. And yeah, look at the Mura. It didn't matter what year that came out. It was going to be gorgeous. So we tried to disengage ourselves from the trends. Now you look at a modern Prius and this crazy back end they've got on them. That car's going to look horrible in five years or 10 or in five minutes. However, it, it, did, it didn't look good to begin with. So it's, well, yeah, so it's not going to age well. So we purpose, we, the stylists and the designers and the team, we're like, let's make this thing look classic when it comes out, but age well. And that comes from the classic proportions you're talking about. And the Lotus Elan, I'll say uh, praise for the engineers. That was done by an engineer. 
as was the 9-11. And, you know, certain shapes are just naturally almost mathematically correct. And even the Jaguar E-type coupe is a combination of three ellipses, if you could draw it. That's the only car I can draw, because it's three ellipses. You can put certain standard rules of proportion into play and come up with some pretty good shapes. And that's what the NA and ND, NC, and of course the ND all have, that same kind of proportion. Short deck, long hood, low belt line. The NC put on the Freshman 15, though. I mean, we all know that, right? Ford got their hands yeah. in that, so it's all another story. Yes, the NCs are actually great driving cars. They're amazing to drive. They're they're absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've been around Laguna Seca for a bunch of hot laps in a spec Miata NC version, and it's a blast. It got heavy because Ford got involved and, and asked for off-the-shelf items, and that makes things heavy. That was the beauty of the NA. It was a 1,000-kilogram car. So we're going to make a thousand kilogram sports car. And it was beautiful because the RX-7 was already there. FC RX-7 existed as the 944 competitor. Like it or not, it was a great car, a lot of technology in it, drove like a dream. And for its period was attractive when it came out. And, and to me, you know, it had its moment in time. Bob Hall will tell you this. Every product planner will tell you this. Every car moves up in its price and weight as it ages. And the Miata was not exempt from that. Neither was the RX-7, neither was the RAV4. Everything gets bigger kind of as it grows. And that was the beauty of what happened with the ND was they said, wait a minute, this is not what, what needs to happen is we need to get back to the formula. And they did. You know, we were under 1,000 kilograms for the NA in the non-airbag spec. Well, actually, even the airbag spec, the U.S. spec was 2168 or something. So right under 2,200 pounds, which is 1,000 kilograms. And the ninth grade physics doesn't go away. If you have a tennis ball on a fishing line, you can swing it all you want. You put a brick on that fishing line, you can't turn the corner. It doesn't matter how much you love your GTR. It is a very heavy car to ask to go on corners. I teach driving schools at the tracks in the Southeast. We love the GTRs, but it's a whole lot different action around the track than a Miata or an MR2 or, you know, some of the lightweight car. At that time at Mazda, like you said, there was a lot of rotary action going on, right? You still right. had the FC and you had the FD coming out and other vehicles. So why put a British-like Kazi-inspired twin <laughs> cam four-cylinder in the Miata and not a rotary? Who made that decision? That's an excellent question. The team in California, we fought for three or four main features. Had to be front engine rear-wheel drive. Had to be convertible. It had to be a four-cylinder engine. The rotary is great. Did not have the character we were looking for. We wanted the noisy, communicative vibration of a twin cam four-cylinder like an Alfa Romeo would have. And we had Alfa 2000s that had great engines. We all loved their five speeds. All of that was great. So we really wanted that character of the classic sports car. From an engineering standpoint, the center line of a rotary engine is much higher than the crankshaft center line of a four-cylinder. So it intrudes in the bell housing and the firewall area such that the HVAC system is very difficult to package. I made a drawing. I, I packaged a 12A in one of my layouts for the Miata. And it fit. I mean, it's all fine. But you pick up three or four inches in the center line of the bell housing. And now the clutch and flywheel are where now the radio is in a Miata. It also messes with the center of gravity. A couple things happened. The RX-7 FD had this phenomenal low hood line. And that's what the rotary can give you. And that was where we were going with the NA Miata. Great, let's do a low hood line. But we did it with the first owner, which was actually, it was a lot of work to try to get that to happen. With a low cow point windshield wiper area and a low hood line with a first owner was very difficult. But the rotary character, to the summarize of the team, Bob Hall, Tom Antano, myself, Mark Jordan, all of us, uh, Jim Kilburn, we all were like, this has to be a four-cylinder raspy note car. Another point is naturally aspirated rotary engines have really good power, but the torque 
curve is dead flat and you don't feel even the uh, normally naturally aspirated SC arc sevens are very, very fast, but didn't feel fast. It's like going down an elevator. Once you accelerated, you kind of didn't feel. And in the Miata, it was purposely tuned so that the torque curve has an ever increasing slope. Your inner ear is constantly getting pulled to another degree of acceleration. And it makes you think you're a lot faster than you are. But it's very entertaining and very rewarding. An eight second or nine second zero to 60 feels a lot faster than it is because your inner ear is getting the satisfaction of ever increasing acceleration millisecond by millisecond. Road ranging really doesn't deliver that in a naturally aspirated sense. You said earlier you're not an artist, maybe akin to styling of the Volvo 850. Not to talk about Volvo, but we can go there. I mean, Straight edge. Right? <laughs> My daughter could draw on Volvo A50, but that's okay. <laughs> that, that aside, and you are an artist, right? If you look at the Miata, it is a gorgeous design. It's timeless. The FDRX7 even more so. You can take that car today, show up right. at a car show, and right. people go, I don't know what year this is from, even though it's from 1993. The same right. is true of the Mark IV Supra and the Audi R8. There's a lot right. of designs that yep. are just timeless. But right. when you look at the original Miata and maybe the NB, you would see the flaws. What are some things about the Miata that just irritate you that maybe you had to compromise on that you had wished were different or you had planned to be different? I'll have to say, Eric, this sounds like um, I've drank the Kool-Aid many times over, but there's not a thing about it I don't love. I drive a BRG every day and I look back at it every time I walk away from it. And there's not an angle to my C4 Corvette comment. There's not an angle about it I don't like. And the NB actually, in its own right, was an excellent, if you're going to do fixed headlights and move a car forward, it's actually a better car. Not necessarily a better Miata, but it's a better car. It's the same car underneath, essentially. Those two are very satisfying shapes to me. Drove the first, uh, it was a service prototype in, oh gosh, this would have been April of 89, three months before the official introduction. I got my hands, I was at a SCCA event and I was invited to speak and Mazda had delivered one of the service cars because they put those out to the service training centers early and they trailered it to this autocross event and they let me take it around the track. And I'll never forget, I had a passenger, uh, Vince Tittle was with me, we get in the car and we go up to this J-turn, uh, you know, like a probably a 30-mile-an-hour entry and then whatever you want to do on the outside. I'd never driven the car before. I'd never driven any production Miata. This is the first one anyone had seen in the U.S. I, it was this sweeping left turn with a real sharp apex, and I, I went into it full throttle and probably 50 miles an hour in second, lifted, the back end stepped out three degrees like you expect it to, nailed the apex, stomped on the gas, and the thing took a set and shot corner out, was perfect, and it was like, this car is perfect. It was unbelievable. It was a weird science movie kind of moment of, wow, they took this two-dimensional object we all drew, this three-dimensional clay model, and with the brilliance of Mazda engineers, turned it into the dream. Because we made a laundry list of what it should be like. It's one thing to say, here's a beachfront property. I want a three-level modern house along the lines of Falling Waters by Frank Lloyd Wright. There's another thing to actually get that, to actually make that happen. And Mazda made it happen. To your point of what would I change, the only thing I didn't like about it was the shift knob. Because the Mazda guys were so good at NVH and they could have made that car very Lexus quiet as Toyota does. They were very much a stickler, had been dinged in the past about vibrations to the shift handle. So they put this half a pound shift knob on it. And it, that was the only thing I could find a fault with is, is that it would, that was just a little heavy. That rest of the car is perfect. You say yourself, it puts a smile on your face. 
that you see the success of the Miata, especially in amateur racing and all the, right. you know, Miata cups and MX-5 cups and things like that, that have existed over the years. But when you walk through the paddock and you see a Miata that's been converted, has been modified, has all these things that they've come up with, do you kind of scratch your head and go, why, or does it upset you? Or do you just kind of like let it roll? I mean, that's your baby, right? It's the Miata. And then you, <laughs> you, you just said the suspension's perfect and here they are throwing it away, going, ah, that stuff is junk. This is what you really need. Well, there are a lot of people that are messing up the suspension with that. And in my, my book, uh, I wrote about how not to mess the car up. As far as the customizing and all that, when we, when we designed the car, we literally, Eric said, we're designing this car for the guy cutting grass that's going to have 500 bucks to buy me out. The blue car behind me is my son's car we got for 500 bucks. He got it when he was 12 and he fixed it up and drove it when he, since he was 16. And that's that fifth owner is who we wanted the car to have because we got cars that way. So we said, we need this car to be that fourth, fifth owner guy or girl that gets this thing for working at McDonald's for X dollars an hour, can afford to buy this entry level car when they're a teenager in high school. Whatever they do with it, I think it's fantastic. Some of the creative stuff's amazing. I'm not really that much a fan of 10 degrees negative camera. Amber, but other than some of the other things is and it was fine it's expression when we had our british cars in the 70s and 60s we were just trying to keep them alive we did not have any time to be creative um now here we have a car and the don't break so what are you gonna do with it well let's modify it i'm all for it everyone has different tastes if i was 30 i might have a lot more to say about it but being twice that i'm kind of like i see where everybody's expressing themselves i think it's great i meant even in the spec series right where it's like thou shalt use this suspension and it, it feels like oh. sacrilege right oh well no no but i get that for spec so for racing i'm more of the 60s ground pre where you just do the best you can do and the rules are very loose and it's a very short rule book spec series though you you have to either uh, cheat really well or <laughs> drive really much like an idiot and be really aggressive or just be really talented but the spec series is there i mean we saw that with the dotsons and the and all that stuff as it began where you have a spec series and i understand the spirit of what a spec series is trying to do so your question was more of clamping down the creativity of how this design could be changed or yeah. maybe changing it in such a way that goes against what you initially designed like the car actually handles worse Right. than you intended it to. A lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction. They've got a really stiff springs and really high sway bars because they have terrible camber patterns. And when you have a BMW 3 Series that has semi-trailing arms and McPherson struts, yeah, you need to clamp that down. Don't let the darn thing roll because the camber patterns are terrible. And in Miata's cases, we designed it to have very good camber patterns. And the journalists always talk about how much body roll even the ND has. Body roll communicates to the driver that tells your inner ear you're in a corner. And it's how you communicate back to the driver. Another tenth of a degree of roll tells you you're now closer to the limit of the suspension or your adhesions. It's a way you communicate to the driver. Now, a race driver doesn't need that level of communication. It's trying to get more and more traction and acceleration in the corners. But ultimate G-force is not what the street goes for. And I, and I think mature enthusiasts know that what's good for the racetrack is completely wrong for the street. And the Miata is designed and delivered as a street car, as are most 911s and 914s and 944s and all the sports cars that we love all come designed to be driven on the street because otherwise you can't sell 40,000 of them a year. Case in point, the S2000 Honda was overdamped and oversprung. I think if you did a statistical study, very few male owners would have kidney stones of S2000s because they were so rough. Everything was shaken out of you. It was not a pleasant car to live with, but it was very fast. Great, beautiful engine, one of the best engines ever made, and great performance on the track for the journalists to print really good articles about. And that's fine. They placed it above the Miata in that respect, but not a great car to live with. So that's a fair statement. Unfair statements would probably be all the memes and jokes and things that go along with Miata ownership, but we're going to skip all those and, and answer a very important question that 
that a lot of people don't seem to know the answer to. A, is it Miata? B, is it MX-5? And if it is Miata, what does Miata even mean? <laughs> well, if no one knows the story, it could be Yunos Roadstar. So in Japan, it's the Yunos. MX-5 in Europe, uh, it'll always be a Miata to me. Yeah, so Miata is a ride-by-master it was a great product planner and bless him. He was three beers into reading the German dictionary one night and found old high German for reward prize is the word Miata, M-I-A-T-A. And he said, yeah, that's a good name. And, it, and we tested it. Uh, we Mazda tested it. It sounded Italian to the focus groups. It said sold. Call it a Miata. There you go. We, we had on the clay models, if you see pictures, one of the early clay models had 1600S as the name. It was the Mazda 1600S, which is an ancient name to put on a car. But that's what we wanted to call it. That's why we were engineers and not product planners. Yeah, like Nissan and the Fairlady 2000. And all right. Yes, stuff exactly. Like that, right? Well, Bluebird. How would you like your Bluebird today on the racetrack? <laughs> Yeah. So what does the MX stand for, for those that don't know? Well, MX is Mazda's. The X is like RX and MX is just a, it's a moniker. There may actually be a, a whole dossier. Somewhere there's a big report on what MX stands for, and I, it's in Japanese, so I didn't read it. But it <laughs> said, I'm sure it's something like more, better, best, and X for excellence. But there's the RX and the MX. That's kind of the sports car series for Mazda. I read somewhere that the X stood for experimental, going back to some of the early cars, but whatever, who knows? Right? Could be. Stopped. Yeah. I So to me, P729 is what the car is to me. And my license plate actually on my BRG is P729. And that's what the car, that's our project number. That was our secret project number. So to me, the car will always be a P729, the NA anyway. The NE, if there is one, what do you think? What's the fifth generation of the Miata look like in your imagination? Is it going to be an EV? Is it even going to exist? Is it going to be slightly larger than the ND? Uh, it'll never be an EV, so let's throw that away. EV is like listening to your favorite song on mute. <laughs> That's, that's, that's a great I, way to put it. That's what I think of VVs. And I've driven a Tesla Model S as a lot of times. The Tesla's are, it's great, but you kind of get bored with them after the fifth time you've done a zero to 60 in four seconds. Like, okay, that's fun, but there's no communication whatsoever. So the Miata being a communicative device needs a four-stroke engine. So let's keep it at that way. I'm not in charge of this. Let's say, um, knowing the Mazda people, I think they learned the lesson with the NC and the ND that lighter is better. And at some point, it, it's kind of like this thing is perfected. Uh, you look at the Corvette, the C5 chassis was perfected. The C6 is the C5 with the new bodies. And the C4 actually set the stage for the C5s. At some point, you've got this excellent chassis. The ND is so good. You don't need to spend $100 million retooling yet another suspension design. And so the question is, how long do you go before you rebody it? And that's always the question. You watch sales and you think when it needs to be refreshed and you refresh it a little bit and then you do a major rebody at some point. Again, I'm not in charge, but I think you see it more on the lines of, let's take this great chassis that's excellent, even in the modern world. This is a six seconds, zero to 60 car. So what more do you need than all that? And it does the crash protection. It does all the things you have to have. It's still a 200,000 mile car. My son's blue car out here has 310,000 miles on it. I mean, the car already has evolved to be a phenomenal device for transportation. So I think now it comes down to design and styling. And so how do you keep modern with that? I mean, there's some beautiful cars out here in that category, the, the current BMW Z4, particularly the, the hardtop version is a gorgeous proportions. And the ND is also gorgeous in his own right. And that was so difficult to do. The team that did that, Derek and the team are to be commended because that 
it's like let's free weight gone with the wind or something it's, it's how you come to that and i think they did a phenomenal job again a car without a bad angle on it so i'm a little bit more partial to the miata's close cousin the fiat as i like to call it <laughs> the, fiat, the fiat 124 abarth what yes. do you think of that reskinned reimagined nd miata you know it offended me a lot less than i thought it would <laughs> I'd say I drove it. I didn't like, I don't like turbo engines because they're non-linear power delivery devices. And with a manual transmission, you get a lot of non-linear power. It's hard to apex a corner at full song with non-linear power. So I wasn't really pleased with the, the visceral nature of driving one. The way it looked, it was actually, you know what? That's actually not an ugly car. It, it actually is a pleasant looking vehicle. It's not a Miata. And I think it's fine. The whole point of this, we'll, we'll go back to a sidebar here. When the first NA Miata got the automatic transmission, all the purists cried. And we said, guys, if it keeps five-speed cars on the road, because now Mazda sells 5,000 extra, 10,000 or 20,000 extra cars, you've got to keep the product alive. When this 964 next to me was sold, Porsche only sold 4,000 cars that year of 911s. 4,000 cars will kill a company. The NSX died, the FDRX7 died out of low volume. You have to keep volume up. At the end of the day, it's a business. If the Fiat keeps that platform going and makes it profitable for all concerned, then it keeps that platform going. And that's good for everybody. And unfortunately, they put a pin in the 124 at the moment. Although I hear rumor that they might be reintroducing it as the Alfa Romeo duetto version. Known uh -huh. to many of us is just the spider. I've seen some concept pictures of it. It's pretty cool. Yep. There also lingers that question of why. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So for the purist, that's a problem. It's like my, my son is an intern with Apple and he knows way too much about iPhones and, and computers. The purists are so close to this that we can't suspend disbelief long enough to think that a Fiat is something other than a reskinned ND Miata. And that would happen with any alpha version of it. Again, we go back to 1900 when people bought chassis and reskinned them with some beautiful, you know, Duesenbergs and things like that later on came from coach makers knowing how to reskin chassis. Maybe there's a version of that in the modern world for these niche cars. Ford Mach-E is selling, you know, they're going to sell hundreds of thousands of these things. So that's what they want. The Fiero died when it got under 100,000 units a year. You have to keep volumes up. The Miata is profitable at 20 to 40,000 units a year. And so that's a nice niche, but that comes from Mazda knowing how to build cars really well and do it on a shared assembly line, which GM and others don't do. I also think it's helpful that Mazda invested so much in their motorsports program, especially right. with you know help from people like Dean and Jim and others who were involved in those programs and getting them off the ground. Because when you talk about the Fiero, you're right. It was a great car in its last two years. Right. It was kind of go when they finally got it right, they stopped selling it, which is always right. the case with any right. sports car. Look at the 944 with the non-turbo yeah. S2s. Everybody goes, it was amazing. Right. But then they got rid of it. You know, things like that. Mazda invested a lot in the motorsports side of it and grassroots motorsports has kept the Miata, the NA Miata's around now for 32 right. years, right? I right. mean, they keep going strong. I wonder if some of those cars, not just by volume, would have perpetuated if they had had the backing of motorsport behind them. They might have, but then, then the engineer may wants to say, but you could you really make a Fiero race? Because you look at the Solstice, they tried to make a Solstice series and the Solstice was not a sports car. It was a very nice shape with no soul with a bunch of Cavalier parts underneath. So it, it didn't work. But the question uh, is, did it work in Europe? Because it was the Vauxhall VXR as well as the, right. Opel, the Opel GT. So right. here's GM selling against itself. That was also <laughs> a big problem with GM. It's like, we're going right. to introduce the same car with five different badges that looks five different ways. And everybody right. goes, oh, the Saturn Sky and the Solstice and the Opel and the Vauxhall are all the same car. And now their volume numbers are down artificially. If you cumulatively looked at all of it, it actually sold pretty well on the global market. Right, right. You know? 
but that makes the accountants and the actuarials happy because they got volumes and they had to amortize that tooling somehow. True. But the problem is in Mazda's case, they went, we have one Miata right. and we sell right. the same Miata everywhere. Right. It's like Catholic church. You know what yeah. you're getting everywhere yeah. you go. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you're right. It's all, it's right. One menu, but, but and yeah, or McDonald's, uh, you know, Big Mac is the same world around. Exactly. And, but you know, when you're small like Mazda and have to amortize the tooling, we did the the story for the NA Miata. The whole program was uh, development cost was $123 million. So multiply that by two and a half, three, you know, to get that number. That's really a cheap program, but you've got to amortize it over small volumes, maybe 50, 60,000 cars a year. That's a difficult thing. And the end of the day, you know, Ferrari builds 200 cars and charges back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s, they built 200 of something. And maybe they have 4,000 of a Dino or something. So uh, very low volumes. And that just doesn't fly in the modern world. So back to the Alpha, if Alpha could take an ND chassis or an NE chassis, whatever it comes to be, and make a car of it in low volumes, better for the market. A friend of mine has a Fiat, as you will, and loves it. And because it's different, it's a matter of what you're looking for. In my case, for me personally, I'm 0.01% of the market. Nobody's going to build a car for me because I'm driving all these old things with no computers or whatever. But the mass market, the 90th percentile customer is maybe coming out of a Civic or a WRX or something, a different kind of car. And they aren't going to be that specialized for a two-seat sports car with a small trunk. There are compromises. With the Miata having been such a high volume vehicle, if you look at its entire lifespan, it keeps it out of the realm and out of the reach of ever being a collector car. So when you compare it to the old Fiats and the Alfa Romeos and the Ferraris and, and the Triumphs and MGs, it'll never attain that status because there's just too many of them. And unlike 911s, where people converted them into race cars and there's fabulous 911 race cars out there that are collectible, some people are right. converting them back to street right. cars now and things like that. I don't ever see that happening with the Miata. Prices are starting to go up. Haggerty's index is rising for the NAs. Not that I think that needs to happen. Again, I like it that everybody gets to have a cheap one. Most of my kids have had a Miata and we got them all pretty cheap. I like that they're low priced. I don't know. Will they ever be collectible? That's a hard thing. I'm the wrong guy to talk about collectability because some of the auction houses and cars that are artificially jacked up in their prices just because somebody says it's worth that. I've seen $500,000 69 GTOs that you know we used to throw away for 500 bucks. So it's it's kind of like, uh, why? Yeah, but, uh, but if you turn that over, car produced at the same time, the FDRX7 is definitely a collector vehicle. Right. And maybe due to its rarity. So your comment is that damned by its popularity. That's fine. The metric of is it collectible or not really doesn't matter to me. In fact, it's often been said, the five or six of us that developed the original Miata from product planning, Bob Hall and design, Tom and Mark Jordan Chin and Yagi-san, Hashi-san, and myself in the engineering and Dean Case, we just wanted a dozen cars to be built. It could have yeah. failed the next year. We really didn't care. We just wanted one for ourselves. So the fact that there's over a million of them on the road is great. It means we get parts real easy for the ones we have. And I feel you there. And I bring this up only because in recent times, coming from a VW Porsche Audi family, I see the same thing with Mark 1 and Mark 2 GTIs. And people are like, oh, $27,000 <laughs> for my Mark 1 GTI. I'm like, get out of here. They made a million of them. Yeah. They're still junk. Right. <laughs> They're only jacking up the value for nostalgia purposes. It's not a 911. Right. Same is true of a 944. It was the right. commodity Porsche, just like the 308 right. Ferrari. It, yep. There was a million yep. of them. You're like, right. all right, fine. That's great for the enthusiasts because there will always be an enthusiast base for cars like that. And you'll continue to see them at the track alongside of C4 and C5 Corvettes right. and E30s. Right. 
E30 and E36 BMWs and everything right. that we love about going to those types of events. So the Miata right. has its home and it, I think it always will. And then that makes me happy as one of the original team members, because it means that it'll be the proletariat's car. It'll be a car people can enjoy and keep trading and keep passing along. I did the math one night. There's been over a million, say a million, 1.2 million built, but they've all been traded. So there's probably like 3 million enthusiasts in the world that have enjoyed a Miata. That's a great footprint. I don't know. This is an amazing thing. That's what we wanted. We wanted everybody to enjoy this great little concept of a car. And in our world, it was a distillation. Back to the original design team, one day we sat down and said, what kind of cars have you had? And everybody talked and somebody had a Countach, somebody had Vallelungas, you know, some phenomenal cars. As I said it before, it's like we all brought our cigar box full of favorite marbles to the table and dumped all the marbles on the table. And then we picked the best marbles out of the batch. And it was, oh, I wanted the weight distribution of the on, the, you know, the low belt line of the Spitfire, sheer gorgeousness of the XKE, the Vallelunga's proportion for a small car. All of these things, let's put this into one car. And Mazda Japan was 10,000 miles away and we didn't have internet. We had faxes. So we kind of were just left. It's like the teacher was out of the room and the kids got to play in the classroom. Uh, we just got on the chalkboard and just made up this thing. Sent it over to Japan and they caught the fever and said, wow, this actually could work. And then it took off and they engineered you know, the final bits and put the thing together and tuned it. And to that point, Mazda gets so much credit because it's like the last generation MR2, I guess that would have been the third gen MR2. It was a phenomenal. It was like a little 348 Ferrari. It was a beautiful little car, well-evolved, no soul whatsoever. The first one was a transformer car. It was a very period car full of Corolla parts, had no soul. You could drift it on an entrance ramp, but it just didn't have, it wasn't connected to itself. And we wanted to avoid that Stepford wife, literally, we use that term, the Stepford wife nature of the Japanese cars that had no soul. And we wanted to put a soul into the Miata. And we described it best we could from our experiences, from our 65 sports cars. And Japan, in perfect Japanese style, dissected those words and, and got their own metrics and their own 160 different exhaust systems and whatever, just went through the process to make a car fit that target and have a soul. Funny you bring up the original MR2 because, you know, that goes in line with what we were talking about earlier about Japanese do have a propensity to copy and enhance and they're very good at that. And when you look at that first gen MR2, you go Fiat X19, except they didn't really know how to do it. The second MR2, we're not really sure. And the third one was the poor man's Elise, right? right? We all know that. Right. that that, yeah, that whole yeah. chassis was shared with Lotus or whatever. Right. But there's a lot of that going on. But again, to your point, the Miata stood alone. It took its inspiration from those great British roadsters that we talked about earlier. I want to kind of talk about a couple other things that are important to you, which is restoring old cars. You're maintaining a fleet of older vehicles. You've done the revolving door of cars over the years. Yeah. Along with keeping up with old cars is also engine tuning and performance. And there's a lot of hocus pocus and a lot of he said, she said, when it comes to building cars, I mean, I talk about this a lot in my student sessions that I give, you know, at HPDs and time trials where it's like, you don't have a wind tunnel at your disposal. Are you sure that that spoiler or air dam that you're adding that a designer like Norman put on actually is benefiting the car, you know, that sort of thing. Right, right. So I'm sure those are pet peeves of yours as well. So I just wanted to touch on that as we progress the conversation. I, I agree. I, I'm into patina now in my older years because I've seen so many over-restored cars. I remember I was at Rick Strayman's restoration shop in Costa Mesa back when I was with Mazda, and he was using Imran paint, the two-part urethane paint, on the drive shaft of an MGTC. And I said, 
nobody needs a high gloss drive shaft on an MGTC. Some guy brushed it on at the factory out of a tar bucket. Now you're overdoing it. Don't over restore a car. It's actually why I love the Imperial that I bought because it had original paint and it was in my old 914 that I wrote about in Haggerty. Dusty, chalky paint. And when I drive it, people go, oh, that's an old 914. That's right. It's an old 914. It should be old. It's a 40-year-old car. It should look that way. It's just me. If you're 20 and 30, you can think what you want. But when you're my age, you've seen so many restored cars that don't really look like what they did in the showroom. It doesn't bring it back. When I see them faded with a little dust on the chrome and a little bit of pockmarks in the taillights, that's how the cars looked. And that takes me back. That takes me more back than over restored cars. Rest of mods are kind of cool, kind of fun to have a car that performs better than the stock ones. Because the dirty little secret that's now pretty much exposed is that all these muscle cars in the 60s were horrible to drive. They didn't turn corners. They didn't stop where the darn, and they really weren't that fast. CRXSI would smoke any of them in, in a modern market. Resto modding them into you know better tires, better brakes, better suspensions, um, and still getting the look. It, it comes down to this. In my perspective now, there's a point of idolatry with automotive shapes, is that you can just idolize the way the shape looks, the way I do a C2 Corvette, split window Singray, or the Tornado. I love the shape. And for me, having one fifth scale model of these cars, it would be 90% of the enjoyment of ever having it because driving some of these cars is not, driving a C2 Corvette is not a lovely experience. They're just lovely to look at. So there's a golden calf Moses moment of they're great to look at. They're not that great to own. I'm right there with you. I mean, if I had to choose, you know, if you told me, oh, a C2 Corvette, especially a split window, I, I would respond and say, give me a Boattail Riviera instead. It's oh, a bigger yeah. car. Yeah. Yep. It's a cool car. Right. You know, and you can right. have a lot of fun with that and not have the whole stigma that goes along with owning a Corvette. You know, <laughs> you're not there, the old chains and the open shirt, you mean? <laughs> and the new balance is right. That's right. Shirt. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about tuning engines for performance. There's a lot of black magic there, too. I mean, in the old days with the carburetor, you know, put your screwdriver to your ear right. and listen to right. the valves, you know, things like that. It was a lot different than with a fuel injected engine like is in the Miata. Some of these boltons that people advertise, I mean, you see all the time, guys like Mighty Car Mods, the Aussies are always proving how some of this stuff, right. people are just wasting their money. The stock airbox flows better air right. than, you know, your right. cone filter because Norman designed it that way. Right. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that switch flipped around 1990, right when the Miata came out. The aftermarket started to decline in its ability to make cars better. And that comes from, as I say, Mazda engineers. When they went through the B-series engine, put the twin cam engine on it, cross-flow head, 10 to a half to one compression ratio, the cams are perfect. When the cars came out, everybody tried to make cams, everybody tried to make things to make it faster, and it just didn't work. There was nothing to do it. We dynoed an engine, found out that it was running 11 and a half to one air fuel ratio at 7,000 RPM. You can't do any better than that. Why chip it? In the realm where the emissions were being tested, it ran stoichiometric and ran perfect air fuel ratio and made perfect emissions at part throttle at 3,500 RPM. But you floor it at 5,000 RPM and you had a perfect map, perfect ignition timing, perfect fuel. There was nothing to improve. There has never been a successful chip made for NAMB Miata, et cetera, because Mazda knew what they were doing by 1990. Everybody figured it out. Even the factory header can be improved upon, but it's a three to four horsepower change. It's not a, in the 60s, you could get 50 horsepower out of a Nova by just changing a manifold and putting on some mufflers. Those days are long behind 
behind us where the aftermarket keeps churning the activity and people are, are very optimistic about what will make their car faster. But it really moved outward from the core of the engine to where when OD2 came out in 96, it was a catback system and an air filter. And that was really all you could do to a car to make it any better. And that might give you 10%. Company I started in '94, Sebring Superchargers, that later became Jackson Racing Superchargers and was picked up by Moss Motors. It became from that frustration was the only way to make any more power was to actually force induce the engine. And I was not a fan of turbos because they're nonlinear response. And and my what I said previously about on a track day, that when you put in 10% more throttle, you should get 10% more power, and a turbo will give you 20% more power. And it's really hard to hit your apexes when you can't control the linearity of your power delivery. So Eaton was making the roots blower for GM and Ford, and I went to their factory in Athens, Georgia. I was living in Atlanta at the time. Went to Athens, Georgia, and I said, the Miata needs a supercharger. We actually had, I packaged one in one of my drawings for the original Miata, right where the power sharing pump we were going to put a supercharger. There's room for it, et cetera, et cetera. People slammed the Miata for not having any power. Let me explain that for a moment. The NA Miata came out with 116, 120 horsepower for insurance reasons. In 1986, the CRX SI in Southern California was $100 a month to insure for a 16-year-old. And that was more than the car payment. Sales were being affected by it. So Mazda said, we can't make this car go crazy. And Mazda, we actually met with Nationwide and State Farm and said, how do we keep the insurance low on this car? And it used to be the headlamp lid on a Miata was $18. The front bumper was 50 bucks or whatever. It was all made to be cheap to fix. So the insurance rating would be low. And the cars are cheap to insure, which is actually an interesting story in the Miata. Um, the NA Miata got dinged on a zero to 60 because you have to shift out of second to get to 60. It's zero to 58.5 is really fast. So it's like, I think, high sevens. But that shift takes you to the 9.2 range. And for yeah. the 1.8, the NAA, they made it so that it would go over 60 in seconds. So you'd have to do that shift. And that got it down to the 7.8 range, I think. A little bit of trivia there, right? Yeah. If it had been a 150 horsepower car, it would have had the CRX SI category and it couldn't have been sold. It would not have sold at the rate because people couldn't afford it. Or only older, wealthy people, you know, it wouldn't have gotten into the group we wanted, which was a smaller crowd with younger people. What we said was, let's let the aftermarket make it more powerful. So back to Eden, I went to them and they said, we don't make a blower small enough for you. You need a 45 cubic inch blower supercharger. We only make a 62 for GM. And I said, well, what if I paid for the tooling to make a 45 cubic inch unit? And they said, okay, well, we could take the Buick unit and cast a new housing, cut the rotors down. You'll pay the tooling and guarantee that you'll buy 50 a month and we'll do it. And I went, well, okay, 50 a month is kind of a lot, but let's do it. So I threw my hat across the river and signed up for that contract. And we created Seabing Superchargers uh, with Jim Downing, the Mazda racer. And it took off like gangbusters. People went crazy because they were getting 40% more power and something they could bolt on in 90 minutes or a couple hours in an afternoon without drilling up their car. And it was totally reversible. We got it carb approved and it was a beautiful system that Eaton helped us engineer. And that was 40% more power. You could get 160 horse out of your NA Miata and it became a wonderful car to drive. NA8 cars with a 1.8 liter and a Torsen and the supercharger. A friend of mine has one. He drives it more than he drives a 911. It's actually almost this perfect car. And that's where the ND has become. The ND is 160, 180 horsepower, 1,000 kilogram range car. And that's a really great formula. Short wheelbase, lightweight car with high power. Aftermarket ran just into a log jam when OBD2 came out. And aside from throwing the malfunction light on the dash, also just there was nothing to do on the inside of the engine to make more power. So I have a pit stop question to ask you before we move on to our sort of last segment. You being the engineer, you're in the design room and two drawings are slid to you as the decision maker. And one of them is the Porsche 959 and the other is the Ferrari F40. Which do you choose to move forward with? Mm, the 959, because it can be made into a road car. 
And those are my 964s. I have a C4 964. So it's a 959 underneath. The 959 is a lot more difficult to make than an F40. F40 is a race car. And its styling is, is, in my case, not as beautiful as into my eye, that the, even though the 959 is very Teutonic. If you're asking which one would I want to develop, the 959 would be a bigger challenge. The F40 is a Le Mans prototype with a body on it. That was a very, very well put answer. And I want to tell you that you are in an exclusive club of people that have chosen the 959 <laughs> over the F40. So that number is not very big. <laughs> uh, the 959 could have air conditioning and wipers. The F40 barely had, I mean, it, it was but a race that's car. the beauty of the F40 is it doesn't yes. have all that stuff. I mean, I, granted, I, I mean, the argument is always the same. The 959 is technologically superior. Yeah. But as I've said before, when the F40 was introduced, it was like when fire was presented to the cave right. people, yes. right? It's, no, it just lights you up inside, right? I agree. I agree. And I've never driven an F40, but I believe I would be faster around Nürburgring in a 959 than an F40. More than likely. I have a Ducati motorcycle that's way over my head in abilities as a street rider. I know that sometimes too much is just too much. And the 959 was space age technology. I mean, the all-wheel drive, yeah, the, right. I mean, it was based on the Audi Quattro system right. and a bunch of other things. And it's there to save you, you yes. know, in that respect, right. compared to the F40, which is just completely barbaric in comparison. Right. Well, no, and that's right. It was it's a race car. It's like you you can't hurt yourself in this car. Please try not to, but you will. It's funny that my 964 C4 Targa has that system in it. It has the fore, aft, and lateral G sensors and the whole PDAS system that luckily you can defeat because it's really irritating to try to drift the car, not drift, but to even get the yaw angle out to three degrees, you can't do it. It will not let you get the yaw out. And that's 1991. And now the driver assist stuff drives me absolutely bonkers. I just have to shut it off. The difference between your 964 and 959 is the 964 uses the synchro system from the Volkswagen. So it's a viscous Haldax C type right, of that's setup. Right. The 959 was an Audi Quattro backwards, which is why I always oh, make I the love joke it. that the 911 is nothing more than a front wheel drive with five reverse gears. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I love that. That's excellent. Well, my daily driver is a um, 3.2 liter Audi Quattro wagon, Avant. Oh, nice. I, I have it turned around the other way in that car. I'm old. Well, we've had seven coupes, two oh, of which my. were UR Quattros. Oh, I owned, no. I owned, oh. An 80, I owned an 83. That was my car in college. Oh, you're UR killing Quattro. me. What a car. <laughs> Oh, uh, we had one of those at Mazda and we just, we all fought for it. We all, every weekend. Well, we as, had as you know, if you drove one, the anemic 165 horsepower that the 10 valve five cylinder turbo yeah. made yeah. was not enough for this weight of that car. It's a 2,800 pound car, 3,000 pound <laughs> right. car at the time, which was heavy. Oh, but what a car. So you mentioned earlier, you're not a big fan of EVs and, you know, we're talking about tasteful retro mods and things like that. And people are now starting to put EV power plants into some of the old cars. You hear about it all the time. The latest Aston Martin abomination that's going to have a Tesla power plant, you know, things like that. I've noted that you've said before the ridiculousness of autonomous driving and EVs. So I want to get your take on what we call the evolution here at BrakeFix. Yes. I like it. You know, I have to relax. I have to make room for everybody and be all inclusive for maybe, let's say a number, 70% of the people that treat a car like an appliance, no different than their microwave, let them have their autonomous driving, but don't make every car have it. Because Black and Decker whole, can start making cars soon. You know, it's all good. Yeah. Let's just all have taxis and Ubers. We don't even need cars. I actually rented a car in Key West out of Miami. I rented a Hyundai with autonomous driving and it was actually okay in traffic. So if I lived in LA, 
I could see the entertainment value of not reading a book, but just watching the car do its thing as it got me to work. But I don't drive a car for community. I drive a car for entertainment. All my cars, I try to drive a different car every day to work so that I can keep the fleet going and the challenge of, and you know, or the motorcycle or something. Um, the motorcycle, you have four axes of freedom and a car, you have two or three axes of freedom. That's the involvement. It's, it's like, do you want to go dancing? You don't want to watch people dance on TV. And the point is, I'd rather go dancing. And that's what car driving is for me. It's dancing. The more we numb it down, I think autonomous driving is for people who don't like to drive and don't want to drive and see it as a necessary evil. And this is rather be on public transportation because that's what they're trying to do. They're making a car into a public transport device dislodged from a railroad track. Total Recall foreshadowed this. They called it Johnny Cab. So <laughs> you, see? you see, Hollywood is always thinking ahead. We should get Sid Mead to come back from the grave and help us with the future. EVs are, are interesting. You know, we've talked to a bunch of people. I've been able to coach in a few myself and it has that roller coaster factor. It's like we get to right. the top and then we right. crash and woo, and then the ride's right. over because they just right. flatten out. They completely plateau. It doesn't right. have the same experience that an ice car would have. But there has been some progress made in alternative and synthetic fuels. We hear about it coming from Porsche and other brands. I got really excited about hybrid. Now, I know right. it means right. that we can't have manuals anymore if we go right. down the hybrid route. And I'm still a dinosaur. I love driving manual cars. But I saw the potential when they said hybrid. And I went, oh, great. Right. This is an opportunity for us to capitalize on right. some legacy technology that comes from the train world, like diesel right. electric hybrid. Right. But right. unfortunately, Dieselgate ruined that for all of us. <laughs> yeah. And it surprises me that it killed it that much. But yeah, that did yeah, kill it. So no 200 mile to the gallon diesel electric hybrids, because that would have been ideal, right? right? How far could you go yeah. with that little generator humming at 600 RPM, delivering 240 volts oh, gosh. to that you know, electric power plant, right? It'd be perfect. But you're, you're right, Eric. Hybrids are the way to go. A few comments on that. I teach automotive power plant design at the local university, and it always comes up, will the IC engine survive? And it's certainly will in many applications, airplanes for one, and tractors out on the farm. Some guy who owns 5,000 acres is not going to drive 20 minutes back to get a charging system for his tractor. And there's certain applications where it has to stay, but it's like the Prius equation. People buy Prius, Prius, what do they say the plural that is? That takes care of that market and leaves gasoline to the rest of us fine. Buy your Teslas, buy your EVs, buy your hybrids, that leaves gas for the rest of us as long as there's a market. We're doing 300 million gallons of gas a day. That river of commerce isn't going to change easily. But the hybrid gives you no range anxiety. It gives you a way to limp home. Even if it's not limping, you're getting home. I have nine children. I would never have an EV because if somebody calls at three in the morning and I've got to go to the hospital and my EV is half charged and the hospital is too far away, I mean, what? I'm not going to go camping in an F-150 electric lightning because I can't recharge it at the top of the mountain. But for a segment of the market, the million and a half people that bought Priuses that just use them as tools and commuters, that's fine. I think we're going to have the coexist bumper sticker only meant for the the effectiveness of this automotive market. Let's all coexist. Some people want their hybrids. Some people want their EVs. Let us keep our IC engines. Those of us with ICE engines, ICEs, are we going to be like the Amish off to the shoulder, <laughs> you know, doing our thing as the EVs go by? But all jokes aside, I feel that the ice power plants will become very equestrian for those that can afford the gasoline because the gasoline prices will go up as demand goes down. Therefore, it will be like having horses in a stable and you'll go out riding on the weekend at your country club, which will be the racetrack. Possibly. But the one thing that, so here's a model of this. Look at leaded gasoline in the 70s. Kelly 
electric converters came in in 74, you can still buy leaded gasoline up to 1985 or later. So I heard it was a couple of years ago, actually. You could still well, you can still, actually you can buy it now at racetracks. <laughs> yeah, but the point was, it was very socialist-wise because poor people can't afford the new technology. They're driving old cars. Now old cars last actually much longer. A Camry now lasts 300,000 miles. So a poor person can't be ostracized from society by having to pay too much for gasoline. So I put some faith in the powers that be that will keep gasoline affordable. To be frank about it, the lower class is going to have these IC engines for 20 more years. There's a little bit of hope in that. The other hope is that $5 a gallon or $4 a gallon gasoline has reached, a, I think, a very high rate when it should be about half of that if we were to stabilize the world economy. But there's synthetic fuels, e-fuels coming that now don't look that unaffordable when you're paying $120 a barrel. There's a shifting moment for it. What I teach my students is hydrogen is the dream. IC engines love hydrogen. Hydrogen is a perfect fuel. It's just extremely dangerous in some categories, but it's a beautiful solution to keep our piston engines. And right now, everything we have with piston engines work because factories are tooled for V8s or W6s or whatever you're going to make. The factories are tooled for pistons and bores. Pistons and bores work really well. Sidebar, rotary engines work phenomenally in hydrogen. But all these things we make and what we package and what work, even hybrids, all work with pistons and internal combustion engines. And the power density can't be denied. Unless there's some breakthrough technology right now, a gallon of gasoline, it takes three times as much battery space to do what one gallon of gasoline does. I believe you're, the yeah. equation is 33.6 kilowatt hours to to one gallon of gasoline? Something like that. You could you could tell me. You did the math on that one. <laughs> I don't have that number memorized. I'm sorry. But yeah, it's just, it's huge. And so the other problem with hybrid, I love hybrids, but the problem is you take a gasoline car and then you find a way to package an electric motor and a battery system and a battery management system and cut out a couple of cylinders. So it's not an easy thing to do because you had to first design an IC engine vehicle and then find room for more things. So for sports cars and small cars, it doesn't really work. An SUV, a, a Yukon or a Tahoe could be a hybrid all day long and nobody will know. And it does get them into be a 30 mile per gallon range kind of a vehicle. If you do the math, a Chrysler town and country minivan, 70 miles an hour in Nevada desert with no headwind takes 40 horsepower. And so all you need is a 40 horse engine. So you can take a hybrid vehicle, take a Prius engine, which is a 60 horse engine, and put it in that and you're fine. And you use the battery backup for climbing hills and passing. And so that equation works really well. It's 1950 train guys, uh, General Electric and GM's division. Everybody figured this efficiency equation out real easily. And maybe diesel will make a comeback when um, the news cycle gets off of Volkswagen's case. But <laughs> but you're right. I mean, but Sky Active Mazda has Sky Active is at 42% efficient. Diesels are 45% efficient, but the Sky Active gasoline engine can reach 42% efficiency in its sweet spot. So we're getting with nine-speed transmissions to a point where we can get gas engines to be um, quite efficient. So you brought up something really cool, actually, and we don't get to talk about technical things like this too often on this show, but I want to bring up the Sky Active. Most people <laughs> that do know what it really is, the Atkinson cycle engine, or what I call the wobble crank. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, would, I would love for you to explain in layman's terms to our audience what the Sky Active is all about and how it works and how it differs from the standard piston engine. There's a couple of different versions of it, but basically let's touch on what you're saying for by Atkinson. So Atkinson was a guy motivated by greed in the late 1800s because he wanted to get around Otto's patents. And Otto had the four cycle engine all locked in. And so Atkinson realized that if he did a monkey motion crankshaft mechanism, he could have a longer expansion stroke. That is when the gasoline explodes, 
and pushes on the piston, that stroke can be made longer if you decoupled yourself from the crankshaft in an imaginary world. It could be longer than the compression stroke was. And every engine in the world, the compression stroke pushes the air up, you have the explosion, and the explosion pushes the piston right back down on bottom dead center, and they are equal distance. The stroke is always the same. Atkinson got his patent by making a monkey motion crankshaft that made the expansion stroke longer. Right now, the exhaust valve opens when there's about 70 or so PSI in the cylinder. And he was uh, purporting that capturing that 70 PSI would give you more power. Wait until there's 10 PSI in the cylinder and capture those 60 PSI. The area under that curve could give you some extra power. And that is a great theory and it works. Um, what doesn't work is the monkey motion crankshaft. So now what we have is fake Atkinson's and fake Miller's. Well, Miller actually is real. Miller is an Atkinson cycle with a supercharger. So let's walk through the progression. You take an Atkinson cycle with a longer expansion stroke and you fake it by just having a shorter compression stroke by not closing the intake valve at the right moment. If you leave the intake valve open too long, they always close after bottom dead center. But if you, if you leave it open way too long, then your compression stroke doesn't start till the piston's much further up its stroke. Now, by comparison, the expansion stroke is much longer. So it's a fake Atkinson, but that's what the EPA is allowing people to call Atkinson's. The problem with that is it doesn't really breathe really well, but that is more efficient, but you kind of wasted the first part of your compression stroke. So it's not that efficient. Miller cycle comes in, which is where you put a turbocharger or supercharger on the system and force more air in so that very short intake stroke you had now is compensated for its being handicapped and you catch back up by shoving in enough moles of oxygen to make it pretend like it had the full stroke. That's a Miller. Now Mazda took that and kept going. When they built the Miller cycle engine in the millennia, they proved that a Miller cycle could be made more efficient. And the millennia for V6 got 32 miles per gallon or some phenomenal efficiency. And they were in the high 30% efficiency in their sweet spot. And this is in the 90s. So the Sky Active takes that even further. And the ultimate iteration is to have an engine that doesn't use a spark plug. I believe that's called a diesel. Diesel engine, exactly. So back to the diesel. We'll get one past the media. We'll have a diesel, but it'll run on gasoline. What it is, is we have a homogeneous charge in the chamber and you let it blow up like a diesel by sheer pressure and temperature. The pressure and temperature are made by a turbocharger or supercharger and you let it blow up just because you've agitated it so much that the gasoline is going to go off. Now, gasoline is very volatile, so it's very hard to time that perfectly. We're in one version of the Sky Active, they're using a spark-assisted compression ignition. So it's like a diesel with a spark to force the timing to be at the right moment. So like an anti-lag where you would put the spark plug somewhere else and backfire into the system. In a way, yes, exactly. So you're just, you're forcing the issue. You can't trust the compression to time it exactly right. You have to have your timing in the modern world within you know one or two degrees to get the efficiency you're looking for. There's so much heat getting running out of the cylinder and things going on in the intake track. You can't always time compression ignition. You can in a certain zone, but you can't do it over the whole driving cycle. I think it's so funny that we come up with these really creative ways to do things mm. that could be solved very simply. And part of the problem we've had with the efficiency of engines, I have to give the Americans credit where credit is due. It's all about gearing, right? Yeah. Big lazy V8s making 160 horsepower and can't get out of their own way, but they're strapped to some super long gears. But then you right. get in a Volkswagen and the German mentality is, I don't want to downshift to pass, so we're going to put 410 gears in it. It doesn't make sense. Right. If you put a double overdrive on a four-cylinder, you're going to get 40 miles to the gallon, even 30 right. years ago. I right. mean, there are some engines that will surprise you that are quite old. The five-cylinder normally aspirated Audi motor was getting over 30 miles to the gallon in the early 80s. Right. It had long gears in it instead of these right. like wind-em-up 
toy gear. So right. there's a big compromise there. And I think we're making up for the feeling of torque with all sorts of right. really cool, you know, inventions, because that's inevitably what we feel. And I hate to say you get in a Miata and you're like, it's kind of torqueless, right? Well, <laughs> it is, it is. And for the reason we mentioned earlier about the insurance issues, when you do have that very, very tall gear, it's like the 914, your 914, the thing's doing 3000 RPM at 75 and it's gutless. So it's fine. You lose performance, but you get efficiency. Exactly. I was able to get 40 miles per gallon out of my Datsun 510 in 1979 by 60 PSI on the tires, disconnecting the secondary carburetor, advancing the timing to like 60 degrees before top dead center, doing all kinds of crazy things you shouldn't be doing. And yeah, the engine would have blown up had I taken it out of that zone, but I got 40 miles per gallon on a car that made 30 otherwise. There's ways to do it. So we go back to the 40 horsepower that a minivan takes to get on the highway. That's where the hybrid does solve that issue for saving all the fuel and saving the planet for the people that think that's going to do it. Electric vehicles aren't really the answer because all they do is relocate pollution from city centers. You're just now moving the pollution out to the power plant, which may be coal in the United States. If you're in Canada where it's all nuclear or whatever, in a country with nuclear power, there's a different argument. For our country, EV is not really the answer. People think it is, but it's not a zero emission vehicle. It all comes down to how do you make the family traveling vehicle Disney World from Atlanta on that eight hour drive, how do they get that minivan or Yukon XL full of kids to Disney World at an affordable price in a way that the driver's not just going to hate what he's driving? And maybe that's the insidious plot behind autonomous driving, because if you don't accelerate the pass because your little computer doesn't let you, maybe you'll be very happy with 40 horsepower. Maybe that's it. They're going to neuter all our cars and make them autonomous because they don't want horsepower. There you go. There oh you my go. gosh. It was that old song. I like to drive 55. You're going to enjoy yeah. it. You're going to enjoy <laughs> it. <laughs> Well, I was around when the 55 was implemented. That was <laughs> that was sad. So until they bring that back, I know things aren't really that bad. Because Nixon put that in place due to the you know the oil crisis, and we were all sitting in line trying to get fuel. Until we see it that bad again, then I'm not that worried because we've done it once. Well, Norman, I have to say this has been a lot of fun, but I want to give you the opportunity. Any shout outs, promotions, or anything else you'd like to share that we didn't cover thus far? Two things. A um, fascinating project I'm working on now is a replacement and an evolution of the IC engine where we're replacing the poppet valve with a rotary valve, which has been tried for 100 years, but has been perfected by an engine development team up here in uh, Ray City, uh, North Carolina, Mooresville. And some engine developers hired me a couple of years ago, and we actually are able to make much more power through higher volumetric efficiency than the poppet valve can allow because the poppet valve gets in the way. Now we're running high compression ratios, super high volumetric efficiencies, great power densities. So the comment is that the IC engine is not dead. There's a lot between Skyactiv, what Moz is doing. We're seeing 30, 40% more power density in the engine with this valve we're working on. It's pretty interesting to see what can be done as we continue to apply ourselves to it. It's kind of like saying the telephone in 1970 was fully evolved and never going to get any better. And look where we are now with our iPhones. So I think as we continue to work on IC engines, we and continue to make them more and more and more efficient. And shout out for certainly to Dean Case, who aside from being a great friend and an old work cohort, introduced the two of us. And Dean's just got a great career. He's had a dream. Uh, we've all, uh, a lot of us have had dream jobs. You have a dream job. We're, we're all very blessed. But Dean's just a great guy. And he loves to put interesting people together. He's like a collector or a filter for interesting people. I'm glad he put us together. Not that I'm so interesting, but I found you fascinating. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Professor Garrett, known to many of us around the paddock as just Norman, is a native of North Carolina with an engineering degree from Georgia Tech, where he has also served as an adjunct faculty member. 
He is currently professor in the Motorsports Engineering School at UNC Charlotte and the director of engineering at Vaztec, an engine development company. And if you want to learn more about Norman, you can check him out online by reading some of his most interesting articles on Haggerty. I'm sure there's more coming or reaching out to us for more information on how to get a hold of him. And that said, Norman, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been an education. It's been an absolute blast. And thanks for taking the time to share some stories with us and with our audience. Oh, it's been fun. And it's always fun to talk cars with smart people like you and your audience. All right. Take care. Bye now. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, gummy bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.